This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 85, November 24, 1984. Today I have with me two of our men, Otto Scott and John Saunders, a.k.a. in his forthcoming role in uh, Hill Street Blues. Is it Sal Hepatico? No, Sal Intestinale. Sal Intestinale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the three of us are going to discuss the media of the Fourth Estate. To begin with, I want to make a few generalizations. We assume that freedom of the press gives us a good press, which is a false assumption. Most of the world does not have freedom of the press, so uh, they have no hope of a good press by and large. Some of the European countries have a licensed press, or in different ways, a thoroughly controlled press. We tend to assume that freedom of the press is an automatic guarantee of a good media. What freedom of the press does is to give us the opportunity to have a good media. It does not automatically give us one. Then let me say next that the history of the press and of the media, by and large, is not a good one. Before I go further, let me say that the history of almost anything is not a particularly good one. (laughs) We cannot idealize the past. The history of civil government is a very ugly history. The history of the church has all kinds of ugly episodes and eras. The history of the arts, the history of almost anything. It is a history of struggle, of painful development towards something better. We've had good moments in the history of the press in this country, but on the other hand, we have a great deal of evil in that history. In the last century, it was not uncommon for newspapers, some of the big New York papers, for example, to manufacture stories in order to gain sales and publicity. One of the more prominent Western newspapers began its life as a blackmail sheet. It hasn't improved too greatly over the years. In fact, 30 years or so ago, Otto applied for a job there, and they took one look at him and refused him because it was obvious he was not gay. (laughs) Now, this has been the press. This has been the media. This, too, has been a great deal of human history. So, as we approach the media critically today, we want you to realize that it is not because we're idealizing anything in the past or assuming that the media is or always has been 
the lone bad apple in an otherwise marvelous society. We simply want to draw attention to some serious problems in the media. Well, with that, uh, do either of you want to take off on uh, some aspect of the question of the media? Well, the media... The media really began what I would consider its revolutionary role uh, during the Enlightenment. And at that point, broke out from what had been private newsletters and reportage into the kind of invention that you mentioned. Almost all of the uh, arguments, certainly not all, but many of the arguments uh, against the clergy and against the aristocracy of France in the 1770s and 1780s was invented. Uh, The accusation that Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, was invented when, as a matter of fact, the queen at that time was running soup kitchens in Paris for the poor. And the history of the French Revolution as depicted in these various, uh, they call them journals, will take you from one extreme to the other. The only consistent factor in the whole area is that none of them can be believed. Now, uh, after Napoleon, the press in in France uh, began to behave itself and in fact ran in clear and present danger of uh, prison and suppression if it didn't. It began to get bold again under the Bourbons, but only against uh, the past. And I recall there was a famous episode when Napoleon got out of Elba, where the Monitor in Paris printed with a headline saying, The Monster Has Escaped. And uh, as the days progressed and he got closer, the headlines became increasingly more respectful until the day before he entered Paris, it said, His Majesty the Emperor has returned. (laughs) Good objectivity. Well, Otto, I think you uh, very wisely started us off on uh, the Enlightenment and the fact that the press then began its campaign of humanism and anti-Christianity. At times, this campaign has been dropped or held in abeyance, but it's very much in abeyance in uh, evidence today. And we see a very extensive uh, and often militant anti-Christianity in the press. I think... uh I think uh, there's a, a very significant tie-in between the use of the press as an instrument of, of propaganda by the left um, uh, that Otto, Otto says, says began uh, quite correctly during the Enlightenment. And I think the only difference between the Enlightenment's use of the press and the modern use of the press is that... Um, the modern media has developed uh, its marketplace to accept a particular kind <clears throat> excuse me a particular kind of of press <clears throat> and 
they're making a lot of money as a result of that. One of the one of the major elements of hypocrisy in the press is that they're constantly criticizing major corporations for making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars um, uh, in terms of their profit and loss sheets. And they were very, very, they came down extremely heavy on the oil companies during the oil crisis and publishing their profit figures. But one of the things that was never published was the fact that all of the major networks and the major press syndicates made more money than these oil companies did during the same calendar years when the oil companies were supposedly um, exploiting uh, the oil crunch. I think the... um, uh, I think it's fairly self-evident that anyone uh, printing uh, from the left or publishing from the left is going to have a, an extreme difficulty um, in ever presenting the truth. There's, th- there's kind of three factors, I think, that are key to understanding how we got in this mess and what can be done to turn it around. I think one of the factors is we have to realize that it's a person's worldview which determines first what is printed, secondly how it's presented, and then third what should be the response to it. And those three factors, I think, if we don't understand those three essential factors, then we can't even understand the modern media. In the first place, what is pre- is, is printed is extremely important because. You can take a newspaper and they can present all kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, perspectives, solely the, the perspective of the left, and they can never talk about they never talk about things like abortion except in a negative light. For example, they never talk about how local legislators or national legislators continually vote for higher and higher taxes. They always they usually blame the amorphous Congress or the President of the United States. But the local media never names names. You know, for example, they don't say Senator so-and-so voted to support the increase in the budget. You see, they never get that specific because that's too conservative an agenda, fiscal responsibility. And you look at how it's presented, you can, there's a world of difference between presenting a particular article on the front page of a newspaper and presenting uh, the same article in, buried somewhere in the back of the press. Um, it's, it happens time and time again with uh, um, uh, many, many stories. I can, I can list dozens of examples in the last year in which a story without any basis in fact whatsoever, simply because it's propagated by a particularly um, adept political figure or media figure, makes the front pages, whereas a heavily documented story that is negative towards the liberal or the left-wing perspective uh, gets buried in in uh, three or four column inches in the back of the newspaper. Oh, yeah. I think that brings up the question of what sort of person is apt to be a journalist. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I heard Peter Bystrup talk about that once uh, at a dinner. Uh, Peter Bystrup is the journalist... I believe he was bureau chief for the Washington Post, and he also was with the New York Times in Vietnam during the war. Later on, he did a recap, a very scholarly recap, on how the press here handled the Tet Offensive and reversed it in the minds of the people 
from a military defeat by the North Vietnamese into a defeat by uh, a victory by them against the United States and South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And Bystrup was asked, and this was a private dinner, why the press, when it was in Vietnam, <coughs> our press, was so acid about General Westmoreland and the other high-ranking officers on our side. He said, well, you have to remember the sort of person who becomes a journalist in the first place. He's in the middle of his class. He's not a jock. He doesn't get the girls. He wears glasses. He's not very athletic. (laughs) And he comes out, he said, and then uh, he gets a job and he becomes one of the boys. And this is the only place where he's going to be one of the boys is in the city room with others like himself. And he said he then sees somebody like Westy Westmoreland coming down the aisle, six-foot, radiating, Jack Armstrong type with a chest covered with medals. And he said, you know, you'd have to be uh, less than human not to want to bring that down. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a very honest explanation of envy. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh I would add another factor here. Cowardice. The cowardice of a bully. Mm -hmm. Now, I have here a small portion of the material. This is a very thick file of two, three inches at least. (laughs) I was going to say small. (laughs) Uh, Articles about Mrs... uh, Ferraro, the recent vice presidential candidate. Now, these articles are of very great interest. Let me cite one example. The Wall Street Journal, Thursday, September 13, 1984, in an article titled by uh, uh, titled Representative Ferraro on a Painful Legacy by Jonathan Quitney and Anthony M. Stefano uh, deals with the underworld connections of Zaccaro and Ferraro, husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Only the Los Angeles Herald Examiner reprinted this article. Nowhere else except in small newsletter-type papers mm-hmm. was anything like this Now, here was a significant fact. If these charges were true, it was important for Americans to know about it, Mm -hmm. for they might well be electing someone who was (laughs) mafia-connected. On the other hand, if we did not know about it, we were being deprived a very important knowledge that was basic to making a decision in the election. Mm -hmm. It would be fatal if this country had someone in high office so obviously mafia-connected, if these stories are true. Mm -hmm. Now, the Washington Times carried such material. The Washington Enquirer, a small tabloid monthly, and a few other periodicals like that. But by and large, 
the public was kept in ignorance about these facts. Now, either the media was cowardly, afraid, or else it had strong liberal propensities that made it want to protect its side. Or a third possibility, and I have no evidence for this, but what if the media has been infiltrated, like so many other things, by the mafia? It does not present us with a very uh, happy picture. Cowardice, bias, or mafia infiltration. I think it's one more, one more factor to consider, too. The media is aware of such things as the Lecture and Rothman report. They're aware of a lot of recent surveys which have shown that the respect for journalism and the press in America is, has been uh, declining markedly, especially in the last seven, eight years. Uh, almost even their own surveys are showing that now because when a network executive starts mentioning the fact that um, uh, they're getting this kind of results in the poll, then you know it's a lot more serious than what he's willing to tell you. And I think one of the factors is the press uh, is worried about its own image, and which adds to the cowardice that you're talking about. I think its own self-image is suffering a great deal. I think the Westmoreland case that's up now suing it, uh, which is the second such case against the same network, uh, in, in less than a year, because we had the, the, the suit against uh, Dan Rather and, and by the doctor in Southern California last year. We've got this year, we've got another major suit. We've seen a reporter at the Washington Post that was given a prize who was later discredited. Uh, we've seen a number of incidents in the last two to three, four years, which have lent a lot of... Uh, which have damaged, I think, the image of the press. And I think that one of the other underlying factors is the press, I think, is getting a little nervous about its own image in the American people's eyes because if that image suffers too much more, they're not going to sell newspapers. They're not going to be able to exploit the people the way they have been. A major news magazine is being taken to court by General Sharon of Israel uh, who claims that they... Uh, radically uh, distorted and misrepresented his conduct in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're getting into an interesting area. Now, I brought up the whole business of the caliber, the human caliber of journalists mm -hmm. deliberately because I recall when I was a journalist how cowardly the average fellow on the staff was vis-a-vis uh, -vis the city desk. He was never bold with his boss. And uh, I brought that up on the Napoleon thing, too. They're never bold when the authorities are strong, but they're very bold when authorities are weak. Now, the press of China was against Chiang Kai-shek. But the press of China vanished as a voice when Mao Zedong and the communists took over. The press of Batista Cuba was vehement against the administration and against that culture, you might call it. And the press of C Castro is muted. 
the press of Nicaragua was very vociferous against Somoza, that is, La Prensa was, and La Prensa now doesn't enjoy the strong government of the Sandinistas. Uh, they got the revolution that they asked for, and they usually do, but it's the end of the voice. However, if you want to ascribe feelings of envy to this particular clutch of people, the envious doesn't, don't care if they lose. They just want you to lose. Mm -hmm. Now we have a strange phenomenon in the United States where the press does not like the people or the government. And the government, as far as the press is concerned, is weak. We have, of course, a constitutional amendment which enables the press to express itself. But the Supreme Court, in going along with the liberal press, removed the laws of libel and slander and has so hedged them about with qualifications that only God would be a credible witness in a slander <laughs> case in an American court yes. because only God can tell you what your motivations were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you put your finger on a very serious problem, Otto. The press has, out of uh, envy and uh, a distaste for those in authority, lashed out at uh, person after person. Now, ever since I began voting, I haven't seen a president that I've been happy with. But I have felt sorry for these presidents because of the genuinely vicious kind of attack they've been subjected to by cartoonists and the press. I don't, didn't like the past four years being in sympathy with Reagan because of the character of the attack or of Carter before him or Ford or Nixon or Johnson and so on. Uh, Johnson, for example, was one of the more most sordid men in American politics. But the attack on him was vicious and irrelevant. If the attack had been to the point, it would be something else. And it would be criticism. Yes. It's been just plain spitefulness, hatred. And uh, I used to hate to look at the editorial page and see the editorial cartoon, for example, and feel sympathetic toward LBJ. But uh, the level of the cartoons and some of the editorials was so bad that I would feel sorry for Johnson. Well, look at what Doonesbury has been doing. Yes. Hmm? I mean, uh, and he's loved for it. Yes, and you see, I think one of the things that one of the ways in which that manifests itself in the last three or four years under the Reagan administration is the fact that the president's personal popularity intimidated the press to the point to where they never really went after him when they should have gone after him, all right, on certain things. But who they did attack were all those around the president, um, for example, James Watt, among others. Uh, they went after James Watt every time he opened his mouth. 
you see. And the whole, if James Watt's history in the Reagan administration proves anything else, it proves that there is no such thing as freedom of the press, because the press, uh, or freedom of speech, because um, Watt could not say anything without the press. Once they had established the precedent that Watt could shoot himself in the foot, you see, once they could establish and they could exploit it, you see, and they did everything they could to attack not only James Watt but anyone else. And Gorsuch Burford is another example of uh, in which a case is blown all out of proportion to the real facts in the, in the situation. And you look that right down the line, the last four years of the Reagan administration, they couldn't attack the president. They were afraid of him. He was too strong, and that might backfire against the press who's already in trouble anyway in the public's mind. But they could attack those people around the president. Well, there's a, there's a formula, a, a formula for left-wing revolutions. If we take the French Revolution as a prototype and the rest as, as imitations, mm -hmm. The usual thing is an unbridled press attacks the unifying symbol of the culture, which in that case was the crown and in our case is the president. Mm -hmm. Now, once you reduce that symbol from a symbol of respectability and dignity to something that anyone can defile, mm -hmm. you have done a, a culture an almost irreparable injury. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that holds us together is made to seem despicable and unworthy mm -hmm. and a target for the lowest individuals. Mm -hmm. The next step is the courts. Now, in the case of the, of the French, in the great prototype revolution, the courts joined the attack on the crown. And in our instance, and I'm assuming that we are agreed on the reality of the fact that we're living in a revolutionary period, yes. the courts have joined in the attack on the president and its power, as they did with Nixon. The courts of the United States ruled that the president's private papers could be open to the public, could be open to the Congress, under the under the Nixon administration. Now, there is nothing to say, of course, that the same thing should not be true of the working papers of every representative and, every representative and senator. Mm -hmm. But the courts, by joining the revolutionary trend, have unwittingly laid themselves open to the third stage, which is the people's courts, or the argument that groups of people should override the rules of our society. Now, that stage hasn't quite arrived, but you can see its shadow on the horizon. As the courts bend to revolutionary arguments and make increasingly bizarre rulings, you can see the people almost, you can almost hear them saying, why should we listen to that? Now, then what, this relates back to something that we were talking about uh, two or three years ago in terms of ultimate categories that when the ultimate categories in thinking I'm speaking now in a philosophic and theological sense you know the Chalcedon uh, the, uh, the Chalcedon Creed and the formulation then which established the, the clarified confusion in the ultimate categories and the Godhead finished the work of the Council of Nicaea <clears throat> and what what we were talking about two or three years ago was the fact that there always has to be a balance between unity and diversity 
in any system or in any society. And what you're saying is, is that, and then, and then what happens is, is that when one of those gets dominant, when the unity becomes dominant, you end up with the all-powerful state. When diversity becomes dominant, you end up with anarchy through a series of stages. And what you're saying, Otto, is that the press is being used as the voice or the, the, the sword to attack the unity, which, which cuts off the diversity, and diversity becomes then the dominant thing, individualism, individual self-expression, things of that nature, and anarchy results, which is exactly the same thing that happened in the French Revolution. Well, the press here was credited with bringing on the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, when you destroy all respect for the forms of authority by putting everything on the level of uh, personalities and envy for those in power. In business or anywhere else. Yes, anyone with wealth, anyone with prestige or position. Which works very nicely. You create a revolutionary uh, temper in society a readiness to see everything that makes for order destroyed. It is not um, a temper for reform, but for destruction. Envy is a destructive force. That's it. You can see see, um, um, it works how nicely that works out in terms of the press's motive in its, its, its own envy is is the basis for exploiting the envy in other parts of society. And that's how off they can play the rich off against the poor. They can play the businessman off against the consumer, right. the environment mm-hmm. off against developer, etc. Fragmentation and destruction. The camera crew focuses on the handful of demonstrators and ignores 99% of those exactly. who are not concerned. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this explains also the paradox of the press, in which it's owned by well, very wealthy businessmen, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's staffed by the envious. Mm-hmm. And one of the odd things about the envious is that the fact that they have goods of their own does not keep them from being envious of other people. Mm-hmm. Although Dan Rather and others are extremely wealthy men, they want to speak for the poor. Yes. Well, it's like the wealthy politician that runs for political office because he wants to do something for the poor. When he'd be better off by taking by tithing and by taking personal responsibility, he would just as soon take your money as a political figure and and uh, write the, the the checkbook, use the checkbook of compassion. You know, same kind of envy. Let me shift the discussion briefly to throw in something that I think is very, very interesting. About ten years ago, I read a book on criminal brotherhoods, mafias of history. The interesting thing is that they have a relatively recent origin in the Western world. They come in when authority ceases to be religious. When the state began to have only a formal connection with Christianity. When the aristocracy, when writers, when various groups began to have only a nominal Christianity, then you developed 
a brotherhood, a force, a power that dispensed entirely with the faith and said, we're going to exercise power in society without any respect for Christian law and order. That's very interesting because I consider the essence of criminality to be a total denial of the dignity of others. Yes. Therefore, they are not entitled to keep their possessions. They're not entitled to be free of physical abuse and so forth and so on. Now, one Soviet emigre, when he was asked, is there a mafia in the Soviet Union, said yes. Its name is the Communist Party. All right, because their attitude is the attitude of a criminal group. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what we have to say is that when the Western world began to break with the Christian faith in the late Middle Ages and then again with the Enlightenment, that was Mm -hmm. the key point, the birth of a variety of organizations which we can term forms of mafia began to develop. Mm -hmm. The state, the schools, the media, every area began to develop the kind of mentality which finds its best expression in the mafia. That's very acute because the uh, similarity, the group then becomes larger than the culture. Uh, This is true of modern-day scientism. Mm -hmm. Now, we're seeing it, for instance, in the experiment on the baboon heart into the infant. Yes. Ellen Goodman, a columnist, had today in today's paper said something to the effect that not sufficient attention is being paid to experimentation upon the terminally ill, into which category that particular experiment fits, and which, therefore, should be regarded very seriously, mm-hmm. and much more seriously than it has been. Uh, doctors are becoming a form of mafia. That's what I was getting to, that mm-hmm. the doctor's attitude toward the patient has transferred from that of a healing servant to a scientific experimenting master. Mm-hmm. And we have the same sort of attitude in the media which feels that it has an existence apart from the government and apart from the people, and uh, that it expresses what Robespierre called the people's will, which only the media can define. All of which comes comes summarized in one word, elitism. Yes. Yes, elitism. But it's criminal. And the abortion mafia. Mm -hmm. There's a very powerful force in this. Well, see, it's like, now maybe there's a key here, because... The mafia only gets a foothold when the individuals in the local community cooperate with it, either through a code of silence or by looking the other way or I don't want to get involved or it's none of my business, How, whatever form that argument may manifest itself in. Whereas the strong Christian individual would say no to that sort of thing and say it is wrong uh, and it should be exposed, as it says in the scriptures, for we'd expose, you know, to the light of day, etc., etc., etc. And and with the decline of Christianity and the strength of the Christian position in the individual, then that opens the door in communities. And we might tie in the witchcraft uh, situations here in the medieval era, uh, where the covens were 
actually nothing more than than uh, mafia forms of mafia that extorted, etc. That's why the laws against uh, participation in witchcraft were passed to abolish that. There's a, when the individual breaks down, then the whole community uh, opens itself up to that to that same kind of extortion. That's yes. very good because the uh, Solzhenitsyn made the observation about the American or the Western press. He said. They're not afraid of anything in the West. They'll attack, criticize anybody. But he said, get them behind the Iron Curtain. And along the smallest <laughs> man in a uniform who comes along and says, you there, shut up and move along. And they shut up and they move along. Mm -hmm. Now, if the people realized that liberty is a matter of self-defense, that nobody else can guarantee your liberties... Mm -hmm you have to guarantee your own. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, the press would not long continue in its present pattern. That's very true. Very true. I, th I think one of the things, uh, since the, I think the majority of us here would classify ourselves as, as conservative, one of the things the conservatives have been complaining about for many, many years is the bias in the press. And, and uh, I think one of the, the things that the conservatives ought to have been doing and haven't been doing is that the conservatives ought to have been putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, uh, the conservatives believe very strongly in, in a competitive free market, etc. Uh, but that apparently seems uh, limited to uh, only certain specific kinds of obvious forms of business because the media, they don't believe apparently in competing in the media and they don't start a conservative organization and put the kind of money and capital and talent into it with the exception of like the Washington Times and one or two other um, uh, organs around the country. You don't see any conservative television networks at all, anywhere. Not even the much vaunted... Uh, uh, thing of of um, the uh, was well, a cable news network. Ted Turner. Uh, Ted Turner. Ted Turner. You know, it's obvious now what Turner's motive has been all same along. Same old diet. Yeah, it's the same old diet, and he's building it up now, and he's trying to make a deal with CBS. Yeah, apparently, from the news articles that have come out in recent recent months, uh, there's a possibility that he may either sell out to or buy CBS. Well, of course, don't forget that there's been a long-standing, although tacit, assumption on the part, for instance, of the Christian community that we should not respond in kind. And that is, has insensibly led to the assumption that we should not respond. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, all of the guys have turned the other cheek syndrome. <laughs> Roll over and play dead, as they interpret it. You know. Now, if I may... Uh change the direction a bit uh, to another aspect of the media. What has happened because of the general distrust of the media, and the recent election was a major defeat for the media, yes. is that in recent years, the past 20 years approximately especially, a tremendous number of newsletters, uh, journals and the like have arisen mm -hmm. which give us information of a radically different sort so that today there are tens of thousands of mimeographed to printed uh, periodicals of uh, a very modest sort some more successful than others which provide us with news 
that you do not get elsewhere. For example, uh, to cite an example of a journal, the Human Life Review. I have in my hand the fall 1984 number. It's published by the Human Life Foundation, 150 East 35th Street, New York, 10016. And I believe it's uh, $15 a year, four issues. Now, this particular number has some invaluable uh, material that you will not find elsewhere. Foundations, for example, give enormous amounts towards abortion and population control. And one article lists how uh, well-financed the population control groups are through not only state funds, this has been documented previously, but through private funds. The Pew Memorial Trust, a very conservative group. Or consider this type of thing, which indicates the temper we find in the courts. I quote, This gentleman developed a terminal disease, lateral sclerosis, whereupon his wife filed for divorce. She openly refused to comply with judicial instructions to honor the visitation portion of the divorce order, left the jurisdiction of the original court, and moved out of state. The dying and immobile man spent thousands of dollars in unsuccessful attempts to see his children. The courts of two states refused to enforce their own orders against the fugitive mother. A Kansas judge declared that it would be best for all if the man would hurry up and die, unquote. Now, this is the kind of news you only get in these periodicals. Let me cite another, the Washington Inquirer, P.O. Box 28526, Washington, D.C., 20005. The Washington Inquirer had exceptionally telling news on Ferraro and other aspects of the election. Uh, then let me cite the Daily News Digest, which is published at P.O. Box 39027, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069 for $177 a year. The issue I have in hand for the 10th of October, uh, the uh, 31st of October. Very interesting. One of the articles deals with the Italian law situation. How there the police today are sent to prison. Hundreds of them are in prison. Why? Because some criminal claims they used excessive force in arresting them. The very men who rescued the American General Dozier, who was about to be killed, are now in prison because the terrorists filed charges against them. Well, doesn't that resemble our court behavior toward mm, criminals? Yes, right. And uh, the result is, in Rome alone, there are nearly a thousand serious crimes every day because... You dare not do anything to a criminal who's invaded your home.
if he charges you with being uh, harsh towards him, you pay. Well, this kind of news you get there, or uh, Anthony Sutton's exceptional uh, Phoenix letter, P-H-O-E-N-I-X, published at Box 39850, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069, for $87 a year, exceptional uh in its contents. Then, of course, I don't think it would be right to forget our own uh, material, the Cal Seaton Report, which deals not with news but perspectives. We're a part of the media. We are in existence precisely because the kind of thing the established media should be doing, it is not doing. Because people like ourselves cannot have a voice in the established media, we have to create our own voice. And the results are amazing. For example, Otto's recent uh, paper on money uh, gained notice all over the world, was reprinted in various parts of the world. One... uh, businessman in the Bay Area made a thousand copies to give to business friends and to customers. So we are functioning as the media, and I believe this is going to be an increasing area of media strength, the independent voices. No question about it. Um, I think that the new fortunes in media are going to be made as as a result of individuals who got their feet wet in precisely these kinds of uh, situations. See, one of the things the media, the, the major media does constantly is, is whenever there's an opportunity, they criticize the underground newspapers, the newsletter routines, the conser- because most of them are, of course, conservative. And the, the whole point is, is that and this ties back to what I was saying earlier about conservatives putting their money where their mouth is in a major way in the media. Uh, <clears throat> these people wouldn't even exist if there wasn't an abundance of information being withheld. Being withheld. In other words, if there wasn't a need, they wouldn't be there. You see, and if there wasn't a lot more people becoming aware of the fact that there was information being withheld from them, they wouldn't be able to sell newsletters at anywhere from 50 to $500 a year. That's true, and I don't think we should forget that the press includes books. Yes. Yes. Now, the problem with uh, periodicals, uh, including even our own, is that they can only cover a small part of what's happening. And even though you get a great number of periodicals, as I do and as you do, it's like watching the reports of uh, 500 chess games in separate places, one move at a time. Mm -hmm. You don't get the whole picture unless you get a book. And the world of publishing, book publishing, is even more tilted than the newspapers or than the networks, because they have to throw in a few sops to uh, survive. But the books 
can be very highly specialized and pointed. So we have volumes of diatribes against corporate life, against business and industry, and against particular groups. Uh, the religious right, for instance, has been the subject of many defama defamatory books, and hardly any in support are given general circulation. So I think when we get into this area that we should also consider books as part of the press and Ross House books yes. in particular as uh, a venture that I consider highly important, highly significant. Well, yes. I think that with the basic with the basic difference being that a book is more of a long term uh, effect, more comprehensive, and more comprehensive, whereas the the popular media is strictly a short-term, um, uh, immediate kind of, of thing. What's new? Yes. Mm -hmm. Let me throw in a commercial at this point. Uh, for <laughs> what? Calcedon? Uh, Calcedon and Ross House <laughs> books <laughs> to exist. We have to have donations. Yes. And the importance of a publishing arm today is increasing. Some years ago, I believe it was in 1940, I bought the political and religious writings, a large one-volume edition of James I of England. It was published by the Harvard University Press in 1918. Now, 22 years later, they were still carrying it, the original printing. They carried it until it sold out. But with the advent of the inventory tax, commercial publishers, which used to carry books 10, 15 years until the book was sold out, now must remainder them. This means their philosophy has changed. I finished reading yesterday a, a, an historical study the author found it very difficult to get a publisher. And uh, the reason was uh, it was the Depression. No one figured the subject would be of any great moment. But one publisher, finally, Koviki, said... There is no one else who has done such a study. The material is ephemeral. It will be gone tomorrow. I say let's do it. So he overruled everyone else to publish it. Unhappily, the book appeared on the very day when Roosevelt closed the banks. <laughs> so nobody had uh, any money to buy it. That poor author. <laughs> and the book died. <laughs> he, he's the classy, that author could yeah, probably. Really, you know, yeah. but, uh, that's about what would happen to me if I got a lot of money. Money would be outlawed. <laughs> Which may not be too far off, as a matter of fact. <laughs> At any rate... Uh, the inventory tax has meant that uh, publishers must remainder books. It's very hard for journals to review books because by the time they publish the review, the books are no longer available. Mm -hmm. And and 
keeping in mind what we said, what I said a while ago about long term and short term, the differences between the two, you have to look at the at at the the book publishing end of it as being almost totally short term oriented. You know, because if the book doesn't get out there and start selling a thousand copies a week right off the bat, they've got to yank it. Yes. Commercial yeah. publishers give you thirty days. Yes, and it's worse uh, than a television series. What has happened is that we don't think of taxes on publishers as an infringement on the freedom of press, but that's exactly what they are. Yeah. It's, it's hard incredible. not to believe that that's deliberate. Yeah, well, I think I think what happens is that um, uh, those kinds of taxes come about in many, many areas, and it's only after the tax has been in effect for a year or two years or five years that those in the political mainstream begin to see how it can really be used. At first, it may be... Uh, propagated for any one of a number of reasons, but I think later on, down the road, um, everyone can see that there are certain advantages to certain groups of people by keeping that particular tax. And I think I think one of the things that uh, uh, we look at the graduated income tax and what it's done to the middle class and what and and how the you know it doesn't live up to its bu- billing has never lived up to its building billing supposed to make the wealthy pay their fair share, whatever that amounts to. And if that doesn't smell like envy, I don't know what it is, um, uh, which goes back to the very beginning of, the, of, of, the, of this session. But you look at, 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 at these graduated taxes, and they become totally arbitrary, where you can use and manipulate people. One group you can play off against another. Again, the fragmentation of society. Well, if you want to go back to the media on this, the media, the uh, the ordinary day-to-day press, does not like books. Unless the books fit the latest campaign of the press. Yes, very true. And they kill books, and they kill writers. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to me that with all the arguments about freedom of the press, nobody has picked up on what Rush said about using taxes as a means of controlling literature, and that the conservatives have never done anything about that situation, although they know about it. Well, our tax situation is so far gone into immorality that uh, the moral issue is not considered. It's only... How can we get more revenue? When a society, when a state begins to put an inheritance tax into effect, it means that it is violating a fundamental premise of Scripture. It is robbing widows and orphans. That's monstrous. We passed that stage a long time ago, so we should not be surprised at what kind of tax we have now. I remember uh, not too many years ago the IRS went after prostitutes. It's legal in Nevada, you know. Um, and fined them for back taxes. It estimated the number of customers they had by the number of towels the laundry had 
handled. Well, that puts them in the category of pimps, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's interesting. When you stop and think and you look at the past history, the last 100 years, 125 years of American history, how it's taken almost 125 years of American history to do what occurred in France in only about 50 to 60 years. It's taken longer. I think if, uh, you can correct me on this, Otto, if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like that the Enlightenment took hold at a much deeper and broader level in France than it did, uh, than the same ideas transplanted to America did. That's true. It was re the progress of the revolution has been retarded in the United States by uh, the religiosity of the American people, the Christianity of the American people. However, the revolution has uh, come to that same realization and has made deep inroads into the religious community of the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a few years ago, the left in the United States owned the official Christian establishment. It had the Barrican brothers. It had mm -hmm. uh, a, a number of other figures whom it held aloft as, as modern-day saints, mm -hmm. William Sloan Coffin of Yale and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. More recently, because of the reaction uh, that has come about, the right-wing reaction politically and the conservative reaction at religiosity, uh, there are now some contrary voices and even some contrary press and contrary media. Jerry Falwell has a publication. Calcedon has a publication. Uh, many other church groups are getting into the act. I think that thanks to the computer, uh, we are going to see what we've all discussed before, the uh, modern equivalent of the old correspondence clubs of the pre-war of independence period where the Christian community is going to start communicating with itself in a very large way across the country, at which time I would say the networks will really have some decent competition, and I mean it in both senses of the word. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned Berrigan and William Sloan Coffin, etc. And what that did with the media was it established a historical precedent in the minds of the media as to what Christian involvement in social and public issues should be like. Right. See, and then along. They will select our yes. saints for us. Yes, see, and, and, and <laughs> they selected all these saints for us and made them all media figures and powers and made them all very powerful, influential people. And uh, it was propagated in America the idea that, uh, as far as the media was concerned, this is what the media accepts as the Christian response and, and solution. And any other response is not Christian. Well, then along, when along came the conservatives, you see, and started saying, wait a minute, we have a voice here too, that did not fit the preconceived idea that the media had, had built up or thought it had built up, and so they began to discredit it and notice the connections that they made some of the very cute and very subtle and very deliberate connections that were made in the media. For example, the Ayatollah Khomeini and Jerry Falwell. Mm -hmm. Not the slightest bit of connection between these two men 
in either their theology or their, their actual outworkings of their ideas in, in government and anywhere else. But what was the common term that the media utilized to tie them together? What do they call Ayatollah Khomeini? They called him a fundamentalist Muslim. What do they call Jerry Falwell? We all know, a fundamentalist Baptist. You see, and they deliberately used a common term, even though fundamentalism has absolutely nothing to do with the brand of Muslim faith that the Ayatollah Khomeini has to do with. You see, the fundamentalists are an extreme minority in the Muslim faith. You see, and the Ayatollah Khomeini does not represent them, and would in fact stamp them out if he could. You see, but the media exploited the common term of fundamentalism in order to associate the Ayatollah Khomeini and Jerry Falwell in the same idea in the mind of the American people. Our time is almost over. Is there a last word that each of you would like to add to what's been said, Otto? Well, I I think that's terribly interesting. And uh, for a long time, of course, Christians in the United States have listened to a variety of voices telling them what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to say, and especially what they're not supposed to do and say. And uh, (laughs) some of the observers certainly give us much less freedom than God. And if we are foolish enough to listen to secular voices in that area, God will be very uh, irritated with us. (laughs) (laughs) And I think foremost among those voices would we would have to count forth the state. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think I think that the mere fact that there is such an immense amount of underground literature um, uh, from the right, from the conservative, and from the Christian. Um, I think demonstrates that there is a much broader need for a conservative, for a voice for the conservative uh, position in America. And I think that that should ring some bells in the minds of many entrepreneurs and bright boys out there uh, who have the willingness uh, to make the commitment in terms of funds and personnel to do something more the Washington, than what the Washington Times and what Calcedon and what several other newspapers and organizations are doing and really go after an aggressive and vigorous campaign to found and propagate the alternative because I think it can be not only extremely successful philosophically and theologically and otherwise but I think I think the first man that does it is going to make and it make a ton of money well thank you And thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure to be with you again. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. Until next time, God bless you.